0: If you had to uh, describe the nature of uh, Christian church in America, uh, what adjectives would you use? Or maybe what adjectives would you use to describe uh, this church that is also in America? Uh, Well, a frequent description of of the church in the book of Acts is typically the mark of joy. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, For instance, in Acts chapter 13 verse 52 says this, and the disciples were filled uh, with joy and the Holy Spirit. So Christianity comes uh, to us in, in joy for our joy because Paul says in First Timothy that uh, we have the, the blessed God, which means the happy God. So just yesterday, Jude was telling me that, or I think it's this morning perhaps, that God is better in us than everything, including his love and the things he knows and his power and said and his happiness. And I said, that's exactly right. God is the, the happiest of all beings, right? He's infinitely happy. So therefore, as Christians, are we marked by joy, by rejoicing? Uh, currently, our, our family is reading through uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and the sixth book is actually the first book. It's, it's like the prequel, kind of like Star Wars. They do it backwards. Uh, but then the very first book, which is called The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Uh, C.S. Lewis writes a description about how the four siblings, so the four siblings, they go through um, the wardrobe, right? And they go into the land of Narnia, and they meet talking animals and witches and all these creatures, right? And they sit in Mr. Beaver's house, and they talk with him about a man or a a lion named Aslan. I want to read you what happens um, that Lewis writes, what happens to the children when they hear of Aslan's name. So they've not met him. They just hear about him. Okay, this is what happens. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. So just the name of Aslan just created all these different response is primarily of joy, but of affection, just by hearing his name, right? So it is the person of Christ, the name of Christ should create multifaceted joy in us, right? Just even hearing him or especially knowing him. Why is that? Why is it that Christians should be marked with joy and trembling, the Bible says, just by hearing of Christ? Well, because our joy is not fixed here, right? It's fixed in another world, right? It's fixed past the wardrobe, you could say, right? It's in a, another world. And joy is not chipper, right? It's not this happy-go-lucky, absent-minded, don't even know what's going on in the world. It's, it's not that, right? It's not simplistic view of life. Rather, it's it's wonderfully steadfast and it's sure, right? C.S. Lewis put it this way, uh, that joy is the serious business of heaven. It's the serious business. I like that phrase. It's It's not just a glib feeling. It's The heaven's very serious about joy, so much so that Jesus came to suffer and die for our joy in heaven and now, right? So, how can you have joy? How can Paul have joy? If you've read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes of all his shipwrecks and being stoned, being chased, being beat up, being beat with rods, being whipped, and yet Paul's in jail under house arrest, and he has more joy probably than anybody in this room. Well, how, how does he have that? He's in a horrible position. Yet he has joy. How does he have that? Well, there's a helpful verse, I think. In John chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus promised that nobody can take your joy from you. If you're a Christian, your joy cannot be removed. It cannot be taken. With that being said, though, many of us, I think, wrestle to have real joy in life. I know at times I do. I wonder if you do as well. This rich, gospel centered, serious business called joy. I want to give you three, catch this, three threefold uh, ingredients for Christian joy. I promise they're very simple. I can't cook anything except like macaroni and cheese, but these are very simple ingredients for having Christian joy. I want to show them to you. So, chapter 3, verse 1. First, the threefold formula for rejoicing. So, Paul's going to tell you how to have joy. It's very simple. Verse 1. First, Christians rejoice in the Lord. So very simply, verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, I like Paul here because like any good pastor, Paul says, finally, and then continues for about two more chapters. I appreciate that. He gives me permission to say finally, then to keep preaching. My wife always reminds me. I always say that and I keep going. So Paul does it. I can do it. And like Paul, Paul says, he's, he's talking to his brother, right? to, to the church, or to, to the believers in Philippi says Christians are to be marked by joy, right, by rejoicing. It's very simple. Uh, for the Christian, joy is to be as natural as breathing, right, or as natural as a response to laugh when you're being tickled, right? Just, it just happens, right? It's natural because it's re- directly related to the reality of who God is. So what is joy woggle? I said it's, it's not this glib, just chipper attitude. It's, not, it's more that's deeper than that, right? It's what heaven is about. I think I stole a definition from somebody. I don't know who it was. I forgot. But joy is an invincible, resting contentment in who God is. It's not changed. It's resting contentment in who God is. And the Bible says it's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. So if you're born again, you have joy. It's been given to you and implanted in you, right? Uh, the, the Greek word, the original word for joy is strongly related to the word grace, so joy and grace in the Bible have the same uh, root word, the same stem, you could say. So therefore, the cause of joy in your life is grace in your heart, right? It's very simple. And joy then is not bound to circumstances, it's bound to Christ. That's why Paul says, if you look again, rejoice in the Lord, right? He doesn't say rejoice in circumstances, rejoice in your house, rejoice in what you have, rejoice in what you could have, rejoice in what you used to have. Uh, Paul is under house arrest. Nothing to do with where you are, right? We rejoice in the Lord because of who God is for us and who we are in Christ, right? And if Christ is our joy, our joy will endure forever because Jesus is the same when? Well, yesterday and today and forever. So your joy really can be invincible if it's in Christ, right? It really can be. So the question you must ask yourself this morning is Is my joy in Christ? Sadly, our joy often changes like a chameleon, right? Depending on where we're at, it might change colors or change what it looks like or change appearances according to our situation. So we shouldn't place our joy in something we can lose, right? And yet what God seems to do, I think to all of us in this room, is he continually reminds you where your joy actually is. Well, how do you know? Well, you know, because when you have days where your, where your day does not go the way that you want it to go. God thwarts your plans, he disrupts your will, he changes your circumstances, and how do you react? Grumble, right? Grimace, right? Just grumpy, frustrated, annoyed, right? Well, why? Because we place our joy in how I think it should go, right? God reveals that to us. C.S. Lewis again says that this shows that our desires for joy are not too strong they're actually very weak because they're bound to things that just go here and there, back and forth. We base it on mist. It just goes. And all of us play this hostage situation with our joy, right? Well, I'll have joy if I get this. If I don't get it, though, I'm not giving up, right? When I get this, then I'll have joy, right? We hold it like a hostage. If I get this, when I get this, then I'll have it, right? Friends, rather, let us find our joy in Christ alone. Christ is sufficient. He's a wellspring of life. He's continually the same, right? He's enduring. He's a faithful friend, a true shepherd. He's invincible. Why would you want to find it in something that is that is going to change, right? Find it in Christ. Second, Christians need repetition. Look at verse 1 again. Write this thing. Same things to you is no trouble. So Paul repeats himself because he's a man, because men often don't hear it the first time. So I'm glad Paul tells us for the second time, right? He's spoken of joy in chapter one, verse four, verse 25, chapter two, verse two, and chapter two, verse 29. And he said to rejoice in chapter one, verse 18, chapter two, verse 17, 18, and 20. So Paul's already just shotgun joy all over the first two chapters, just already. It's very clear. In chapter four, verse nine, Paul says, you should be acting this way because that's how I've been acting. You've seen what well, you've seen and heard of me. So they've seen Paul's life They know how he thinks and talks. So Paul's saying, what you've seen of me, just keep doing these things. I'll tell you the same thing. Just be joyful, right? We should be reminded again to be joyful. Malachi chapter three, verse six says this, for I, the Lord, do not change. Likewise, Isaiah 40, verse eight says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you see, it is the same things that you need to hear every Sunday, I hope when you come here, you can say Kale basically preaches the exact same thing. It's Christ alone, faith, repentance, trust, glory. If you can say that, I think I'm doing I think I'm doing the Bible honor there. We need the same things, right? The things that remain constant or the things that never change are often the most crucial, right? Consider this. Does a mother love her same children? Well, of course she does. Do we not love the same gospel? Of course we do. It's the same thing, right? In an ever-changing world, we need to be reminded daily, weekly, of unchanging truth. And one of those is the repetition that Paul says we need to hear this again and again. So friends, let me just remind you again to find your joy in Christ, not in things. It's not going to work. It's going to bankrupt, right? We need to hear it again. Thirdly, Christians need a safeguard. Look at verse 1 again. It's no trouble for me to tell you this again, and Paul says it is safe for you. The original word for safe here has to do with something that is unable to be toppled over. It's so a thing of like a big fortress. It's safe, it's not going anywhere, it's not being moved or destroyed. It's it's untoppable, it's unpushoverable. It's, it can't be overthrown. Right? Paul's saying, for me to tell you this, it's good for you, it's safe. So Paul informed us about true joy to keep it from being overthrown by circumstances. So friends, put it this way, if you know the truth, you won't fall for a counterfeit. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the way they train federal agents uh, to spot fake currency is not by showing them fake money. Who cares about that? There's a million ways you could fake it. Instead, they make sure they know true currency. You know how to look at it in the light. You look for certain markers. You look for the certain stripes, certain colors, certain colors. Things you can do, if you know exactly what true money looks like, you can always spot a counterfeit. It's very simple for them. Likewise, Paul is saying, if you know true joy, you can spot counterfeits. It's safe. If you know this, you're safe. You're good to go. You got nothing to worry about. Consider again that Paul was safeguarded in prison, so he knows what it means to be safe. He's not going anywhere. He's stuck. He wants your joy to be stuck in Christ as well. Now for me, when I think of safe, I think of Fort Knox. I don't know if you know what Fort Knox is or maybe you're not familiar with the stats. I looked it up. There's two of these stats, right? There. They're, they're stunning. But let me just give you a couple brief ones. Fort Knox is made of roughly 1,500 tons, not pounds, tons of steel, 4,200 cubic yards of concrete. So it's literally bomb-proof. Like, it ain't not go anywhere. It's staying around. The vault door is 21 inches thick pretty hefty it weighs more than 20 tons so weighs more than 20 of my low key optimas that's one big door i mean that, that's just the, that's just the door it's massive right even the combination to get into the door you think oh well if i just go talk to that guy he knows it the combination is spread out between six or something different people and they don't know who has the other parts and even that list is blacklisted you can't even get to the list So even if you could get to it, you couldn't get in because you got to get people who don't know who has the, uh, the, the combo that you need. In other words, Fort Knox is very, very safe, right? You put something in there, it's not going anywhere. Well, your joy in Christ is more secure than Fort Knox. It's not going anywhere. It's unshakable. It's rooted out of this galaxy. It's anchored behind the veil of time and space, right? It exists in another world. It can't be changed by this one. So therefore, let's take this simple threefold course to find our joy in Christ, to hear it again and again, because that is safe for you to hear. Secondly, Paul gives, so that's a threefold ingredient. Here's a threefold warning for rejoicing. Your joy also requires you to be warned, believe it or not. It's good for you to warn children, hey, you can play outside. Don't play in the road. Ironically, out here, the road is relatively safe. Our kids sitting on the road, but you're kind of like, oh, there's no cars coming for the next five hours. We're good. But don't in the road. It's good for your joy to warn people. Hey, don't do things, right? Don't touch the oven. It's good for your joy, right? So Paul gives us a warning as well. Look at verse 2. He gives us threefold warning for our rejoicing. First, he talks about these men's character. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for these for these dogs. Now so Paul's not talking about hey, what's up, dog? What's up, homies? He's not talking about that, right? Like, he's not talking about who let, what, who, let, who let the dogs, he's not talking about his friends. He's talking about dogs. These are bad people. He warns the Philippians about false teachers who've apparently crept in, right? They're, somehow they're either in the Philippian church or they're, maybe they're outside, they're in the same city, whatever. There's, there's people who are infecting the Philippians. They are teaching improper things. Now, you read this and you think, why is being called a dog bad? I got a good dog. I like dogs. Well, Paul's not talking about old yeller. He's not talking about lassie. When the Bible talks about dogs, it refers to these mangy, coyote-type, scavenger, nasty animals. Not lassie. Coyotes, nasty animals that eat trash, they eat filth, they eat roadkill. They're gross, they're mangy, they got fleas, they're nasty looking. So much so the Old Testament talks about in 1 Kings chapter 14, 60, and 21, part of God's judgment is saying, when you die, dogs will be there to lick up the scraps. That's how gross dogs are. So, so these aren't little pets. These are nasty things. So Paul is saying, false teachers, they're like that. They're gross. You don't want anything to do with them. They're dogs. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul approaches Peter, his brother, right? And says, Peter... What are you doing? So Peter is sitting with Gentiles, but when the, his Jewish friends comes, he goes, oh, uh, I, don't, I don't like Gentiles, I like Jewish people. So he says with the Jewish friends as, as if he could be unclean. And Paul says, you can't do that. You're making the gospel look bad. And he, he says, you can't tell people to live like a Jew. And Paul uses the phrase Judaizers. Maybe you know that phrase from other pastors. So Paul is likely talking about people here who are Jewish converts, who are saying to be a Christian You still have to do Jewish things. You have to adhere to the Jewish law. Think about what Paul is saying to these men who are likely Jews. Are dogs filthy and dangerous and disgusting? So are those guys. They are dangerous, right? This is what they teach in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. This is is probably the first appearance of these men who are claimed to be Christians. Here's what they say, chapter 15 verse 1 in Acts. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If we heard something like that, so let's just say one Sunday morning, someone came up here and said, unless you wear certain colors, unless you don't go see that movie, unless you don't do these things, unless you don't behave this way, you cannot be saved. What would you say? Well, the Bible didn't say that. Serious, right? This isn't just like a, an idea. This is people saying, "If you don't do something, you can't be a Christian." If you're not doing something, this is an affront to the gospel. Paul is saying this is immoral. This is dangerous, right? Therefore, it's a loving warning to be told to beware. A compromised gospel is a compromised eternity. We must be very serious about those things, and Paul warns us and them for our joy. Uh, this week, well, yesterday, uh, we went to an apple orchard to, well, pick apples and it was awesome. Apples are great to pick fresh. It's fun because you just take them and you taste test. And my kids all of a sudden now love apples more than they, they ever have probably. But we saw some apples that were just bright red, had these little bugs. I mean, just all over. And I was like, what are those apples look disgusting? Well, the, uh, the owner of the orchard told us those are, those are fake. So I walked by and I smack, it's like hitting a rock. And they're actually fake ornaments that he sprayed red and he stuck to the trees. He just, I mean, strapped them on there, however. And all the bugs who like red and apples, they just go to the apple. They put their eggs in it and they just, well, they waste it on a fake apple, right? It's, it's not real fruit. It's just stapled on, so to speak, right? It's just the appearance of real fruit. Well, Paul is saying that the, the, the stapling on, the, the putting on of outer Christian morality of saying, do good things on the outside. That's not real Christianity. It's not outward. It's not outward painted doing goodism. That's Paul says. That's that's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. That doesn't save anybody. It just attracts bugs. You're a dog. Don't do that. Right. So we must examine ourselves. It is not the outward things that we do that God says. Oh, you're a believer. It's not that. It's something else, which we'll get to shortly. So that's their character. They're teaching these things. It's an outward performance, right? Second, Paul says, look at their conduct. Look at verse two again. So if you notice, he says, look out. He says, beware three times. Like, look out, look out, look out. Beware, 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 right? Look out for the dogs. Look out for, too the evildoers. So ironically, again, Paul is saying those people who would say, do the works of the law. Paul is saying, that's lawless. If people are telling you, you have to do outward things to become a Christian, that's against, the, that's against God's law. It's not correct, right? To press upon moral commands is itself immoral. Let me say that again. To put moral commands on a person to say you have to do this to be saved, or you can't do this to, to, to be saved, is not the gospel. It is immoral, right? That's what Paul's going after. And you think about who Paul's talking. He's talking about people who know their Old Testament. They adhere to it. They believe it. They memorize it. And Paul's saying anything that competes with the gospel needs to be rejected. It, it, it cannot stand in the ring. It has to go. He calls him an evildoer, right? Meaning even good moral oughts that you ought to do. If that is laid in the path of this is how you are saved is not the gospel. Are Are we clear on this? I want to make sure I'm being crystal clear. So if you've not listened at all, catch this this is super this is this is the main thrust of the whole text today doing churchy things that we say you ought to do doing american good things that we say you ought to do doing good things doing christian-like things if demanded alongside or in addition to believing the gospel is a false gospel that is not saving anybody it cannot and paul says that is evil right it's wicked why is that Because it says, well, Jesus did the majority. I mean, he died pretty well. Just tack this on, right? It calls work into question. So again, Paul's not attacking what it means to look like as a believer. He's attacking what so needs to believe as a believer. Does that make sense? That's, That's the distinction there. Kevin Young said this, the gospel is not a message about what we need to do for God, but about what God has done for us. And an evildoer adds us to the work of Christ in order to be saved. So salvation is not like two oars in a rowboat. Salvation works. If I do those things, I'll make it to heaven. It's not that. It's Christ alone. Your works add nothing to it, right? Thirdly, their creed. So their, their character, their conduct, and here's their creed. Look at verse 2 again. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul talks about... What they are commanding, they're they're commanding circumcision, which we'll get to here shortly. In Galatians chapter five, verse two, Paul says, "This look, I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept anything else, don't then. I guess you don't need Christ at all. Just leave him. You don't need him. You don't need Christ if you accept anything else." Paul is saying that's very strong. It's very aggressive, right? If you think you can do extra things, then Christ doesn't do anything for you. You just do more things, right? What Paul is saying. Well, again, why is that? Well, there's a there's an adherence to doing outward things to please God. It doesn't help, right? It's rejecting what Christ has done. Even if it's biblical things, in order to do good things, Paul says it's it mutilates the flesh. It's destroying who we are, what God has called us to do. It mutilates the flesh. And what's hard is we all we all long for this. If we're all honest in this room. We all behave this way. Let me give you an example of what you've probably done perhaps even this week. This week, you probably sinned at some point. If you didn't, there's your first slide right there. You did. You probably did. You did something dumb, something you shouldn't have done. And you think, "Ah, man, why did I do that? And in that moment, if you looked to what you have not done the rest of the week, what you have done, well, that guy's worse than I am. Well, at least I didn't do this. You're looking to yourself for confidence. Well, at least I didn't. I mean, sure I yell, but at least I didn't slap the guy. Look into your works, right? Well, sure I lie, but at least I didn't kill the guy. You're looking to your works, right? Why? Because we like to have something we can check off. I like it. Well, I know what I didn't do, so I must be okay. The Bible says that's false confidence, right? that mutilates the flesh. If we're honest, this assaults our pride every week. Why? Because I like knowing I did and did not do something, right? So when the Bible says, whatever you've done doesn't move God's hand towards you in favor at all, you think, what? I've done some honorable things. I'm not a crook. I pay my taxes. I go to church. I vote correctly. Not, not, that does nothing? That's an assaulting to my pride, right? Me being the same doesn't it, it, does it move God's blessing to me at all. That doesn't make him favor me more. That doesn't feel right. It feels offensive, right? Maybe you've come here this morning thinking that. If I perform better, God will bless me more. Maybe he's not because I, I, not, not I, I haven't performed enough. Maybe I need to do more things and he'll sway his hand more and release this storehouse of blessing. Maybe if I do that, he will. That's a very flickering faith that we all wrestle with. God today would free you from that. Where is God's favor at? Where's it at? It's on a cross, right? You want job well done? You want God's blessing on your life? You want favor and grace? You don't want it on you. You don't ever want God to be fair with you. Not a day in your life do you want fairness. I don't want fairness. That'd be God's judgment. I want favor. That's in Christ, right? God's well done, his, his smile is not in your law keeping, but in what Jesus Christ has done. So remember this phrase, S-O-S, save our souls, right? Well, the law shows our sin. If you, if you look at God's law, what you have and have not done, that shows our sin, it shows you what you've done. Well, you haven't done, you've broken that law, right? Romans 3 verse 20 says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, it shows us, the law comes the knowledge of sin. And as a sinner, we need another righteous life, not our own. There's a song that I used to sing at a church in Illinois called To the Cross I Cling. It's an excellent, excellent song. And one of the main lines says this, All things in me call for my rejection. All things in you Plead my acceptance. you you hear that? Everything I've done is a means for God to reject me. Everything Christ has done is a means for God to accept me. Isn't that good news? That's not good news. I don't know what is, friends. It's good news of the gospel. And We we never look to ourselves. So Paul warns us to trust in something different. Here's the third and final reason. The the third and threefold worship for rejoicing. Look at verse 3. So, so then how do we approach God? So we're supposed to have joy. It's nothing about what you've done. How do you approach God? How do you worship God? Well, look at verse three. For we are the circumcision. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back the truck up, Paul. That's a weird thing to tell me. Why would you say that? It makes no sense. Maybe reading. read that thinking, why? What does that even mean? I mean, I know what that means, but what does that mean, Paul? That's uncomfortable, right? Let me give you a helpful explanation about why Paul's saying that in a very PG, helpful way, okay? The surgical procedure for circumcision was done for males on the eighth day. The Bible says you circumcise them on the eighth day. It's in Genesis chapter 17, Leviticus 12. Jesus himself had it on the eighth day as a faithful Jew. Paul says, and a few years later, he had it on the eighth day. Well, why not the fifth day? Why not the sixth? Why not the first? Why not tomorrow? Why the eighth? Well, think of what seven days is. What is seven days? A week. Thanks, Kale. Right? Make sure we're all paying attention. It's a week, right? So what is the eighth day? It'll be a new week, right? So, what the Bible is saying is, when you are born, you are spiritually unclean, right? You need to be you need to be made new with God. So, on the eighth day, the beginning of a new week. Something is cut off. You are your something about you is removed, so you can be set apart to God. It's, it's supposed to be a symbolic act of removing literal flesh to show that you were born unclean. Something needs to be removed for you to have. Communion with God. You're unclean. But on the eighth day, on the new week, you can be a new creation. So you could be set apart to God. This could be a symbol of removing something and being made new. Do you understand that? So this physical procedure was meant to proclaim you were unclean at birth. Something outside of you must make you clean. This picture is meant to show that. <clears throat> meant to be an outside intervention to be separated to god jeremiah 4 4 speaks that very clearly so this and this required pain bloodshed in order to be a new creation to worship do you see where the gospel goes with this does it make sense now paul takes us against these jewish defectors and he says that to truly worship god you need you need to be the circumcision you need to be cut off from your sin unto the lord So first you worship God, these three are much more brief, by the spirit. Look at verse three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. So true worship is in spirit and truth. It's in real authentic worship and in truth. John chapter four, verse 24. So friends, worship is more than what you do here. Worship is not just singing and reading your Bible and hearing a decent sermon and going home tired. That's not worship. That's, we do that here. But biblically, worship is what you give your life to. It's what you give God to. It's your life offered to the Lord, right? It's initiated by God through the Spirit to himself, right? It's not natural. It's supernatural. We know this because Romans chapter 2, verse 29 says this. Paul explains to you what circumcision actually means biblically. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So it's a spiritual act. That whole picture was meant to symbolize a spiritual need to be born by the spirit have the spirit work upon your heart so friends this morning as you come i must ask you has the spirit changed your heart have you been born again are you a new creature in christ have you been separate have you separated yourself from your sin and do you belong to god are you trusting in the death and life of christ for you If you're not friends, you you are not worshiping God any day in your life. Unless you are born again, you cannot worship the Lord. You just can't. You can come here, but it's not worship. It's just whatever you're doing. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So you will love the Lord with your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. So it's like, okay, I want that. How can I do it? Well, God says, I'll do it for you. I'll cut away your flesh. I'll restore you to myself so you can worship, right? So if you've not done that, friends, you need to turn to Christ today. That God can do that for you for free. He cuts away your sin, makes you alive in Christ, binds you to his son by repentance and faith. And by grace, friends, it is not our will, our affections, nor our good days or our bad days. It's not your obedience this last week. It's not your Sunday morning importance for here. It's not your weekly grace. It's not the strength of your faith that God accepts your worship it's none of that. God accepts you because Christ laid down his life for you. Isn't that good news? Even on your worst week, you come here not because you've done it, because Christ did it. It's very good news. Secondly, we glory in Christ. Verse 3 again, and glory in Christ Jesus. So friends, I hope, this, hope you know that in Christ we can draw near to the throne of God daily. We can freely draw near to God because Christ has drawn near to us. So, we, we glory, we, we boast in nothing about... So Paul's saying, these guys are boasting what they've done, outward things. Paul's saying, we don't do that. If you're a true believer, it's nothing about what you've done. It's about what Christ has done. You glory, you boast, you say, Christ only, not me, right? It's what Christ has done. That's what true worship is. It's directed towards Jesus. Every day, his life is in our bank account, not my own, right? A false Christian doesn't believe in Christ that way. They come saying, well, I, I performed today, so I should be all right. That's unbelief, right? We need to put our faith in what Christ has done. If God looks to Christ for our righteousness, so should we, right? No one likes a showboat. You guys watch football games or baseball games. No one can stand that guy who, who walks up and goes, look at me. What do you all hope happens? I hope you trip. I hope you strike out. I hope that ball, I mean, I hope it you in the head. I mean, we hope so, right? Because no one likes a showboat. Right? We can't stand it. No matter the field, no matter the sport, no matter the job, we dread boasters. I mean, they drive you nuts, right? It's all about, look what I've done. Look at me, look at me, look at me, right? a matter of fact, when people ascend the ranks to a better job, what do they usually do? Well, it's more of them, then they forget about you down there, right? Well, now that I'm here, I forget about everybody else down below, right? You're forgotten. You're the, you're, you're the old ones. You're way down there. But when Jesus came and suffered low for you and he ascended high for you, he's not forgotten you. He's not like a friend who got promoted and forgot about you. He ascended with you on his heart, with you in his hands, right? He remembers you before the father for your sake. Friends, there is never a day where Jesus forgets his work done for you. Are you aware of that? God always remembers you wrapped up in the work of Christ, never apart. Hebrews 8.12 says that God forgets your sins. And Jeremiah 49 says that a mother will sooner forget her child than God will forget you. Isn't that good news? So friends, turn from performance seeking and rest in Christ. Remember SOS. The gospel shows our Savior. The law shows our sin. The gospel shows our Savior, Romans chapter three, verse 22 says, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. That's how you find it. He is gentle and lowly. Your sins, there are many. His mercy is more. Thirdly and lastly, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Look at verse three again. So we we worship by the spirit. We glory in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. This is where our hearts will go automatically, unless we rein them in like wild horses. They will always go this way. We are all natural born list makers, Pharisees. Look what I've done. I mean, I'm that way too. I always look what I've done. We're all that way. We're natural born. So true worshipers put no confidence. Uh, what does the word confidence mean? Are you familiar with this word? Con means with. Fide means faith. So confidence means with faith. We put no faith in ourself, Right? There's no prayer, no method, no tearful song, no deed, no cleaning up. Neither are there no positive actions, no right living that can make God accept you. There's just none. As Christians, we believe that, right? It's no confidence in the flesh. It's what Christ has done. Maybe you've heard it this way. It's not dance and dress or drugs. It's not those things, right? Neither is it being clean, quiet, and moral either. That's not conversion, Right? We trust in Christ. That's how we're converted. There's a story of, a one of my favorite stories, of a man named Elias Keach. He was the son of a famous Baptist minister in the 1600s in America. And his father's name was Benjamin Keach. He's very, very, he's very famous, very well, well-known preacher in, in the day. He pastored Charles Spurgeon church before he came to America. And Elias was not a believer, but his dad was famous. So he came to America. He would dress up like a pastor. Like, well. Whatever that look like, right? He put on the garb, put on the dress, and he would go have these fake sermons. He would preach sermons. People would go, that's that guy's son. Well, let's go see him. So he would preach his father's sermons. So they're very good. On one occasion, he's preaching his father's sermon and he stops midway and just cries and falls to the ground. People are like, is the guy okay? Like, What's going on? And they approach the man and he was converted preaching his own dad's sermons, falsely appearing as a believer. He was not truly born again. So friends, it is not outward garb that makes you a believer, right? It's inward confidence in Christ. It's not not confidence in the flesh of confidence in Christ, right? It's his life, not ours. His work, not ours. His obedience, not mine. His devotion, not mine. His perfection, not mine. His offering, not mine christ alone right and the good news is that when you do that god does change the outer right christians do have an image they look like but it's day by day it's the inward changes and affects the outward it's not the outward affects inward it's inward affects the outward right starts in and goes out so friends we put no confidence in the flesh we put no confidence in our children to come to faith by themselves we put no confidence in our ability to fight sin by ourselves We put no confidence in loved ones to come to Christ by themselves. Oh, they'll do it. No, they won't. We put no confidence in our ability to understand the Bible by ourselves because we won't. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put it in Christ, right? Friends, pursuing joy in God and praising God are not separate things. In Christ, they are the same. Your joy in God is your trust in Christ. Let's pray.